0: Here, let me turn that on. (laughs) Turn, if you would, (laughs) to the first chapter of the book of Romans. Last week, we started the second half of the first chapter. (sighs) I'm I'm getting hand signals. (sighs) Let's just pray and go home. Or we can talk about the wrath of God. Hmm. Verse 17 of chapter 1, for it is the righteousness of God in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we had some discussion about that last week. We acknowledged the fact that that's really what the entire book is about. We had a discussion about what we believe that passage to mean, that it is Christ's righteousness given to us, imputed to us, that allows us to be righteous before a righteous and holy God. The problem is, is that in order to appreciate the good news, and that's what gospel means, you have to understand the bad news. The bad news that we are in need of a Savior. And the rest of chapter 1, and chapter 2, and most of chapter 3... Is the bad news, because what he is going to do is set about convincing you that no matter what your excuse is, it's not a good excuse. But I didn't know the law. I don't care. You did know it, and you suppressed the truth in righteousness. That the the truth of righteousness that was last week's lesson. But I I don't know the law. I'm not a Jew. Well, we'll talk about Jews and we'll talk about Gentiles and the fact that the law of God is written on our heart. That's chapter 2. So for the last half of chapter 1, chapter 2 and most of chapter 3, he's going to talk about we are sinners without excuse. And it'll end up in chapter 3 when he tells us there is no one who does what is right, There is no one who seeks after God. There is no one who is righteous. No one, no one, no one. But, and then we get back to the good news. We live in a day where we think we are all pretty good people. We're nice people. We're kind to each other. Well, except for those people over there, right? The kind of people I hang around with, we're nice. Well, Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to chop that niceness to shreds. We started last week with verse 18, and we discussed what God's wrath was, and we made it to somewhere around verse 22. So we're going to pick up in 21 and continue reading. For although they knew God, this is all of humanity. Remember, that's where we ended up last week, and we'll end up in exactly the same place today. This chapter is not talking about those really bad people. You know, the Stalins, the Hitlers, the Pol Potts. No, this is talking about all of humanity apart from Christ. This is talking about us apart from Christ. This is talking about your neighbors, your co-workers, your family and friends apart from Christ. Else, We all know what exchanges are. I give you something, you give me something. We exchange. You know, I go to work and I exchange my labor for money. I then go to Walmart and exchange my money for food. And that's the way it works. We also, as adults, try to uh, establish some value such that that for which we are exchanging is Roughly proportionate to that which we are giving in the exchange. And we all know that children are very susceptible to not doing this. You know, you give a child a hundred dollar bill and somebody walks up with two nice, bright, shining quarters and says, I'll give you both of these for that one piece of paper. And the child goes, wow, two for one. It must be a good exchange. But it's not. It's not. Do you remember the old movie Charade, where he ends up swapping the stamps? The little boy does three stamps for a whole pile of stamps, except the three stamps were exceptionally rare and exceptionally valuable. We're going to talk today about exchanging things. We think about, I don't know, Esau. He comes in from the field and he's starving. His brother's been cooking some food, and he says, give me some of that food. And Jacob says, give me your birthright. and I'll give you the food. Well, what does it matter about my birthright? I'm going to die of hunger right now. And he swaps it out, and it says he despised his birthright, his inheritance, for a pot of stew. It was an exchange that didn't make sense. You can go throughout scripture looking at things that are exchanged. You can look at friends and neighbors and the exchanges that were made. A man exchanges his family and his reputation for a fling with some other woman. The exchanges are constantly being made. Why would we do that? Why would we exchange the glory of the immortal God? We are made in the image of God. And we exchange that to go chasing after the things of this world. Why would we do it? Because we suppress the truth and righteousness in our futile thinking. What is futile thinking? Destined for failure? failure? Human reasoning? Hmm? Human reasoning? hopeless we talked about this last week that if i gave you a map of new york city and told you to find your way to my house that map is worthless you could be the smartest person in the world and using that map you couldn't get to my house because it's the wrong map and that's what futile thinking is if i begin with the wrong premises i will not cannot end up in the right place You know, we sometimes like to think that people like me are smart and people not like me are dumb. Well, there's lots of really smart people who believe really wrong things. Why? Because if you start in the wrong place, you'll end up always in the wrong place. They became futile in their thinking Although they knew God, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Foolish hearts were darkened. The next passage also refers to the idea of a fool. And we need to remind ourselves what the Bible tells us about fools. You know, we think about a fool as just being somebody who's stupid. Biblically, a fool can be very intelligent. The book of Proverbs talks about the person who is simple, that is, the person who just doesn't know. Okay, a child is simple. A child needs to be instructed. We know adults who put in the wrong situation don't have any clue what to do. They are simple. You know, you go to the airport and you see the person who obviously has never been in an airport in their life. They're not stupid. They're just out of their element. They're in the wrong situation. They are not a fool. They are just ignorant about that particular situation. The fool, on the other hand, is the person who has seen the truths of God and said no. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. They have not just demonstrated their ignorance. They have demonstrated their rebellion chapter one is teaching us that all of humanity should have known about god because as we saw last week the invisible attributes of god are clearly seen in creation and we should have acknowledged the reality of a creator but we said no and we went chasing after other things Our foolish heart was darkened. The heart is the center of who you are in biblical terms. The mind, the will, the emotions. It's who you are. And if that is darkened, it cannot, will not see the truth. John chapter 1 talks about Christ being the light and coming into the world. And a couple of chapters later it says, And the world rejected him because the world loved the darkness. They loved not knowing about God because they thought it let them off the hook, and it didn't. They became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's a good thing that we don't worship idols anymore, right? We have no images. We don't go into our room of the house that has the graven image of some creature that we bought down at the image store. We don't do that. We wouldn't worship something that was created more than we worship God. We don't worship the TV or the entertainment or the cars or the homes or the jobs or the... You fill in the blank. Idolatry is with, when anything, anything, anything takes the place that God is meant to occupy. God is, by nature of being the creator of the universe worthy of our glory, our honor, our respect, and our obedience. And when we take those things and apply them to something else, it is idolatry. And we think we're so smart when we do it. We think we're so clever. We think we have it all figured out. And it says we think we are wise, but we have become fools because we've made a foolish exchange. Someday, at the second coming, at the judgment, the reality of that exchange will be obvious to everyone. I gave up that for that. I gave up two bright, shining quarters. I gave up my dollar bill for two bright, shining quarters. I gave up my $100 bill, my $1,000 bill. I gave up something of infinite value, and I got... Something created. (sighs) But it gets much, much worse. Next verse. Therefore God gave them up. Three times in the passage we're about to look at, it says God gave them up. Why would God give them up? What does it mean to give them up? Is this a demonstration of God's mercy or is it a demonstration of God's wrath? In the simplest terms, when it says God gives them up, I believe it means he let them do what they wanted to do. But wait a minute, don't people want to do nice things? Don't people want to do good things? Aren't people basically nice? No. We talked about last week um, natural law, the kinds of things that we can understand about God from nature. There is also another term referred to as common grace. That is the grace that God has bestowed on all of humanity. It isn't just the grace that is necessary to be saved. It is the grace that allows the rain to fall, the sun to shine, the crops to grow. All of the good things in life are an example of God's common grace bestowed upon all of humanity. One aspect of that common grace is God's restraint of sin. God continually keeps people from being As bad as they could be. He restrains sin. And he does this in a variety of different means. We'll see when we get to Romans chapter 12 or 13. That God institutes authorities to restrain evil. We have a police force to keep people from being as bad as they could be. But it's not just external restraints it's internal restraints you start to do something bad and you go "Eh, that just doesn't seem right and you don't do it that's god in you and it happens to believers and unbelievers now we're told we can say no to that and that is what the scripture refers to as hardening your heart when you continually hear that voice and you say yeah i'll go do it anyway and next time the voice is less, and next time the voice is less, and pretty soon you can't hear it at all. And we have a hardened heart. But what if God removed that restraint just a little bit in your life, in your individual life, and in a collective life of a group Organization, nation, state, world. What if he removed that restraint and let you do what you wanted to do? That is God giving you over. What is the result of sin? More sin. What is the punishment in the here and now of sin? More sin. Somebody asked me last week about God's wrath, and we touched on the subject. Is God's wrath something that we experience now, or is it something we're going to experience in the future? And the answer is yes. (laughs) The book of Revelation talks about buckets and buckets of God's wrath being stored up. We experience it in drops now, and we will experience it in buckets then. If we are intending to claim righteousness apart from Jesus Christ. So God gives them over. He lets them do what they want to do. Now is this a demonstration of his mercy, his grace? Or is this a demonstration of his wrath? And once again the answer is yes. You know, if there were no consequences for sin, we wouldn't know we were sinning. We'll talk about that in the next couple of weeks. By allowing us to see consequences, God is giving us the opportunity to repent. And that's grace. The fact that he doesn't zap us the moment that we do sin is evidence of God's grace being bestowed on us. So in one sense, yes, it is a demonstration of his grace. But in another sense, it is a demonstration of his wrath. You know, although you don't really believe it, that God doesn't really have to give you a second chance, or a third, or a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth. You could continue this for the rest of the hour. God doesn't have to give you that. His wrath is, will, is being displayed against unbelief. Therefore, God gave them over. Hmm. Gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged there's that word again the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen god gave them over to allow them to do what their hearts desired remember previous verse their hearts were foolish and their hearts were darkened Your mind, your will, and your emotions are darkened and foolish, and He lets you do what you want to do. Your mind says, it would be better to do this, even though the Scripture clearly says I should go this way. That is a darkened and foolish mind. And if God lets you do that, it is because He has given it over to you to follow your own lust. Your mind, your will, your will is what chooses. You make choices. What is the basis of your choices? I choose based on my understanding of what God has told me is right and wrong, or I choose on the basis of, well, what do I want to do right now? That is God giving you over to the lust of your heart. The mind, the will, the emotions. Emotions are fascinating things. They're fascinating things because, first off, they're real. Okay, We're not trying to make some machine out of human beings that have no emotions. God created us as emotional human beings. Throughout uh, movies, popular entertainment, they have shown characters who had no emotion, pure, rational thinking machines. And they're usually weird. But the emotions were never meant to guide our actions apart from from the will of god huh that's interesting oh but we have all of our discussions today emotions are just who you really are they can't be tamed they can't be controlled they can't be influenced you can't command someone to have an emotion yes you can god says love the lord your god now is love an emotion yes Is love more than emotion? Yes, yes, yes. So what happens when our mind, our will, and our emotions are foolish and darkened and hardened and God gives them over? Our emotions start demonstrating a reality apart from God. But I felt this way. I don't care. What does the word of God mean? say our mind our will and our emotion all have to be brought under the lordship of christ and disciplined to his will a little bit more about that in just a moment they exchanged the truth about god in one side of the scale is god's truth it is the truth about god and it is the truth that god has revealed on the other side of the balance scale is what they exchanged and they exchanged it for a lie what is the lie the lie is it doesn't matter what you worship you are going to worship something end of story We are created to worship something. You're going to create, you are going to worship something, either the creator or that which has been created. And that is the exchange that we as humanity have made. Verse 26. Hmm. For this reason, God gave them up. Here we see it again. Three times in the passage, this is going to occur. It is a downward spiral. And it began when we refused to acknowledge God. And verse 26 and 27 are probably some of the most pertinent verses in the entire Bible to the world in which we live today. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And we start squirming in our seats. Is this talking about homosexuality, yes, yes it is, there are those who state that they are believers and that they are practicing homosexuals, how do they handle a passage like this, we actually had a lesson on this topic a couple of years ago when we were uh, looking at Bible verses that embarrass us, remember that? Because in our day and age, in our day and age, to claim that there is anything wrong with the homosexual movement will bring you the derision of all of society. I mean, you're just, you're outside the circle. Whatever the circle is, you're outside it. So how do they get around this passage? Well, first attempt they make is simply just to ignore it, okay? This passage is talking about a cultural phenomena at one point in time where older men were essentially raping younger men and obviously that's wrong. Therefore, that's what this passage is talking about. The second attempt that they make is by looking at the word natural, natural relations. You see, it is natural for me as a heterosexual to have sex with a woman but if i i as a heterosexual were to have passions for a man that would be unnatural but in the same way if you are born as a homosexual it is natural for you to have homosexual relationships therefore it's not wrong in fact it would be wrong for you to do otherwise Because that is part of your nature. The problem with that is there's nothing in the scripture to support that. It is a line of thinking that came out of a group of philosophers in the 20th century to try to circumvent this passage and others like it. Genesis chapter 1 and two, make it very clear that God created them male and female. That is the natural order that God has created. When we move beyond that, we have moved beyond that which is natural. Yes? Some people have a Bible that has a little in it. It's called a loose-leaf Bible. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, there are people been throughout history who've taken the Bible, taken their scissors, either literally or metaphorically, and cut out the passages that they don't like. Yep. What does Isaiah fifty three tell us? What? I know. Yep. yep. Does, Satan does Satan cause the darkening? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> the question was, does Satan cause the darkening? You go back to the Garden of Eden and Satan was the tempter that told Adam and Eve that they could be like gods if they just operated apart from the will of God. So obviously, as a first cause, Satan is responsible for it. When we sin today, is it Satan's fault? No. Could there be demonic influence? Yes, there could be. Okay, I just read a book last week about casting out demons and that stuff, and it was a rather cultish book uh, that I would not recommend. But uh, I would not deny the reality of demonic forces. Okay, traditionally the church has said there's three things that tempt you, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Personally, I do quite well with the world and the flesh. I can sin all the time without the devil even bothering But I'm not going to deny the reality that the demonic forces do exist. Are they, are the acts, acts of the devil? And that would be yes, in the sense that they are not of God. They are of that which is in rebellion to God, which we see in demonic forces. Yes. They've always existed. So, homosexuality was just as much a sin then as it is now. But the difference now is that they're trying to push it off, almost. they're trying to mainstream it, they're trying to push it into schools, to hmm. they're trying to totally it. it's a totally different phenomenon. Like you and we're going to see that at the end That's of this spiral. They won't talk about it. That's the last verse of the chapter. We'll get there in just a moment. God allows us to give in to the passions of our heart. That's the point of all of this. Homosexuality is a sin, and it is the result of sin. It is a step on The downward spiral. And don't get me wrong, as I alluded to just a moment. There have always, always, always been homosexuals. There have always, always, always been fill in the blank with some sin that somebody else does that you don't do. Okay? Sin didn't pop up in the 60s. Okay? It has always been there. Always since the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate the fruit. At different times in the lives of individuals, in the lives of groups, communities, churches, nations, states. People have been at different places on this downward spiral. Sometimes they're way down here. Sometimes they're up here. There has never been a utopia. There will never be a utopia as long as it is filled with sinful human beings. The point of this passage is the downward spiral. And at each turn of that spiral, we exchange something of God for something of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And what Paul is demonstrating in this is not that it's okay. He's telling us that we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be shocked. But we should acknowledge that it is an exchange for something of infinite value for something not. Let's keep going. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here it comes. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's exhausting just reading the list. I always wanted to teach a lesson on each one of these words. Wouldn't that be depressing? If you were here to listen to the sermon last week, you will, see, you will uh, remember that uh, Pastor Ted spoke on envy and the sin of envy. You could have an entire lesson on every one of these. I did finally break down and look up the word ruthless. That word has always fascinated me. Why? Why? Well, faithless is the lack of faith. What is ruthless? I am not making this up. I looked it up in the dictionary, and you know what it says is the first definition of ruthless? A lack of Ruth. Can anyone in here ever tell me that they've used the word Ruth and it not be a woman's name. <laughs> Ruth means, I looked it up, compassion for the misery of another, sorrow after one's own faults. It really is a word. I didn't know that. <laughs> then all of a sudden, ruthless begins to make sense. What do we glean from this list? Let's go back to verse 28. Uh, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. We've gone from futile thinking to a debased mind. And these are the natural offsprings, the natural children of a debased mind. Question, what does it mean to acknowledge God? If they're not acknowledging God, if we are not acknowledging God, what does it mean to acknowledge God? To put him first. In what? Everything. Everything. When I make a moral decision, do I, first off, take the word of God into account and be... When I do take it into account, am I willing to push everything else off the table that God may be true and all the world a liar? I can sit here and I can bring in sociologists, psychologists, social workers, modern ethicists, I can bring in politicians. I can bring in everybody into this room to convince you that homosexuality is okay. Okay. But God's word says it isn't. God's word says that all of the things on this list are wrong. Question. Can I go through this list and find things that we think are okay today? I can find lots of them. I actually think it's interesting. I worked, looked up the word insolent a couple of years ago, actually. I did it because I was thumbing through a magazine and there was a perfume called insolence. <laughs> there really was. Insolent, insultingly, contemptuous in speech or conduct. Why would you name a perfume after that? Because you want to show that you're bold. That you stand up. That you don't succumb to the whims of a society that is forcing its rules upon you. You are contemptuous of all of it. Why? Because we refuse to acknowledge God. Notice the spiral. The things of God should have been clearly seen, but we suppress the truth. God gives us over to the passions, the lust of our hardened, darkened heart. And eventually we go, God? Is there a God? Eh, I don't know. Who cares? What difference does it make? I think it is interesting, as a parent, that disobedience to parents is on this list. In the midst of all these other things, we see this. Uh, This week, sometime during the week, on National Public Radio, they were interviewing a pediatrician slash child parenting expert. And he's written books, okay? And it was a fascinating interview, And the interviewer asked the question, are children today more prevalent to respond to the desires of their peer group than of their parents? And the guy said, you know, uh, at an anecdotal level, people have always thought this, but we actually have some statistics about this today. A doctor had run a survey 50 years ago, and he had asked young people. Your friends, all your friends want you to join this particular group. And one of your parents object. Do you join that group? Sixty percent said no. They would not do it if one parent objected. He, the author of the book, said, I ask kids this all the time today. There's a website that you go to, that, no, that your friends want you to go to, a social media thing. Do you ask your parents? He said, they don't tell me yes, and they don't tell me no. They just laugh at the question. They just laugh at it. It's a meaningless question. Why why would you even ask your parents? But you know what I thought about when I heard that? Is that what we do to God we don't tell God, yes, we don't tell God, no. We just laugh at the idea that you'd even go ask. When we have a major, minor daily decision in our lives, Huh? We refuse to acknowledge God. All manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Yes. I am not going to go there. (laughs) The question is, are all of these of equal evil? You remember when we were, last year we were talking about, um, what were we talking about? The fact that God punished Israel as a whole for the sin of Achan. One person's sin brought judgment on all the people. Then we talked about, just in passing, in connection with that, the fact that when Abraham was arguing with God, you know, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you destroy it? No, no, not 50. How about 40? And they get down to 10. So 10 righteous people would have saved Sodom, and there weren't 10. So what is the equation? How many righteous does it take to take you down the... To keep you from going down the spiral, how many guilty does it take for the society? I'm not going to answer it because there is no answer. Because if I gave the answer, let's put these in order of importance. And that would be an interesting discussion. Maybe I'll do that next week. You know, on a scale to 110, number, uh, you know, rank them and I'll compile all the answers. I know what you'll do. The ones that those people do are bad. And the ones that I do, well, they're not that bad. I mean, Ted mentioned it last week when talking about envy. You know, that's one of the acceptable sins today. The fact that I'm envious that you had a better summer vacation than I did, that you drive a better car, that you live in a better house. Well, that's just part of the American way, you know, the dream that keeps us going. No, it's envy and it's sin. Let me ask the question another way. Which of these sins will not send you to hell apart from the righteousness of God, of Christ? There's none of them. There is a book, and I actually went and heard the the man speak, Does God Hate Gays? And his answer is, no, God doesn't hate gays. God's wrath is going to be demonstrated against those who refuse to do God's will, whether it's in the sexual arena, whether it's money, family, work, wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit. Now, No, we get prayer requests, <laughs> and we and we call it gossiping. The answer, I mean, that that is my point. You're, you're exactly right. At any point in time, in a given society, there are some of these that we kind of wink and and don't think are that bad. I mean, we were just talking about homosexuality, and now we're talking about gossip as if they're the same thing? Which sin will not send you to hell apart from the righteousness of Christ? No. Not till this summer. But we are going to skip ahead in just a moment. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. We are going to step ahead for just a few minutes. I am not, in general, one to jump to... uh, deep conclusions that we're living in the worst of times, okay? I've read enough history. I know that there's always been bad times. There's been good times. There's been ups. There's been down. As I said, societies at different times have lived at different places on this downward spiral. But it is hard to believe that in the society in which we find ourselves right now, we are not collectively somewhere down this list. Many of the things that are on this list, you know, the world practices every day. I mean, I don't want to name any, I'm not going to name any names, but start reading campaign literature of either side against anybody and see how much of it would fall into the category of slander It's not the truth. It may be a little bit the truth, maybe sort of, but I know the purpose of it. It's to push, throw the other person down. Many of these things we have just come to accept. And not only do we do them, what does it say? We give approval to those who practice them. I was very, very dismayed when the Supreme Court gave its ruling on homosexual marriage. And I don't go on Facebook, but my kids do. And with their direction, we started looking at some of the responses to good Christian young people who said, it's about time, this is great. Not only do we do them, we give approval to those who do. So what can we, should we, ought to do today? The number one is obvious. If you're somewhere down this spiral, you need to repent. Well, can I repent if I'm down this spiral? If God helps you to see that what you're doing is sin, then God will give you the grace to repent. If you are worried that it is sin, you haven't gone off the, over the cliff yet, okay? If you are anywhere on this downward spiral, you must repent and acknowledge God for being God. But if you skipped ahead to Romans chapter 12, in fact, why don't you look over there? We will have a complete lesson on these two verses. Here is the answer. Romans 12 is the beginning of the application what to do as a result of everything you learned in chapters 1 to 8. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Here is the answer to all of that discussion about using your body for dishonorable things. Present it as a sacrifice to God. And I always like what Ted said one time. It's a living sacrifice, and as a living sacrifice, it wants to keep walking away from the altar. Every day, you have to put it back on. What do we. In a society that is moving down this spiral, do we demonstrate the alternative by presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable. And perfect. We are called to not be conformed to this world. If Esther were here, she would say, but that's not easy. You're right. It's not easy. In the 50s and the 60s, it was easy to at least con- to conform to a biblical lifestyle. We can argue whether that we were really following a biblical, but at least on the outside, it looked like it. Today, it's not going to be that easy. But we are told not to be conformed. And how do we do that? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Remember we talked about a futile mind, a debased mind. What our mind thinks about is going to determine the decisions that we make. How do we renew our mind? By pouring the scripture under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, the teachings of others who believe the Bible, by pouring that into our mind, how much of it do you need more? How much of the truth do you need in order to circumvent the falsehoods that we're seeing continually in the world around us more? As we live in a society... That moves its way down this spiral. We are to repent. We are to transform. And we are not to conform. Will that be easy? No. So what's the conclusions of all this lesson? Well, they're actually the same conclusions we had last week. The wrath of God is being poured out on the ungodly and the unrighteous. This is talking about all of humanity apart from God. Before we accept the good news of the gospel, we must first understand the bad. Bottom line, there is no excuse. And next week we'll start chapter 2 and we'll hear some more excuses because we as human beings love to make up excuses. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace that you have given us Thank you that when we were sinners, that when we were unsaved, you saved us not because we were perfect, not because we had done no wrong, but because of your grace through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to repent of our sins and rest in your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.